Good evening. Partygate is back. Yes, I know there are many of you who say it's just a storm in a teacup, but please think this through. When the story first broke, this is what the Prime Minister told the House of Commons. I've been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that, and that no Covid rules were broken, and that is what I have been repeatedly assured. But I have asked the Cabinet Secretary to establish all the facts and to report back as soon as possible. And, Mr Speaker, it goes without saying that if those rules were broken, then there will be disciplinary action for all those involved. And the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, was even clearer that there had not been any parties. Many people across the country made great personal sacrifice during the lockdown. So will the Chancellor categorically deny in the House that he or any of his officials or spads attended any of the Downing Street Christmas parties on the 27th of November or the 18th of December last year. Yeah. Chancellor? Oh. Uh, no, Mr Speaker, I did not attend any parties. There you are. But I'm afraid to say the Metropolitan Police take a very different view and Boris Johnson is the first serving British Prime Minister to be fined for breaking the law. A law, of course, that he made. And it is a criminal sanction. Mrs Johnson is fine too. They've both apologised and paid their fines. For Rishi Sunak, well, what a rotten week it's been for him. Fine for going to a big booze-up party when he's a teetotaler. It really must be all just too much to bear. There are many believe, though, that this is not the end of Partygate. It's just the beginning of round two. Now, there is no doubt that if this had come out two months ago, Boris Johnson would have been gone. The no-confidence letters would have absolutely flooded in. And questions are going to persist as to whether he and Rishi Sunak misled the House of Commons. But today, all those critics are in hiding. You won't find Conservative MPs saying Boris ought to go. And the reason is, of course, the war in Ukraine, where not only is he seen to have done well, and I have to say, he has given real leadership over it. Sad he hasn't done more on the domestic scene. But the real argument is you can't get rid of a prime minister during the middle of a war. Well, I tell you what, in July 1945, the voters of this country took a very different view on Winston Churchill. We were still locked in mortal combat with Japan. There were many, including the American General MacArthur, who thought the war could go on for years, and it wasn't until nuclear bombs were dropped a month after that election that the war with Japan ended. So what is going to happen? Well, my guess is that Boris Johnson will survive for now. But I have to say, the whole Conservative Party is mired in scandal. It seems to get worse every day. And it feels to me very like the mid-1990s with every day that passes. Now, a couple of companies have done some snap polling in the last few hours, and 60% of the population think Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak should resign. Worse still, 75% of people think the Prime Minister lied about the COVID rules and what he did. You may well be sitting at home thinking, look, I don't care about all this. I care about bigger, 
more important things. But if you've now got 25%, perhaps even slightly higher, 25% of those who voted Conservative at the last election who think the Prime Minister should go, well, unless he can turn that around, and I'm not so sure that he can, then I think the Conservatives are inevitably heading towards a complete drubbing at the next general election. That is my view. But let me ask you, do you think Boris Johnson will still be Prime Minister at Christmas time this year? I don't think so, but I want to hear what you've got to say, Farage at gbnews.uk. I'm joined now by our political editor, Darren McCaffrey, who is in Downing Street with the latest. Darren, good evening. Yeah, good evening, uh, Nigel. I think your astute point in all of this is that this is not the end. Uh, rather, it may only be the beginning. We have to remember that the Metropolitan Police, a couple of weeks ago, issued 20 fines for a party that took place on the eve of the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral, something Boris Johnson was not at. He was at Chequers, where he is, in fact, uh, today heading into the Easter break. Then we got notification today of 30 fines in relation to that birthday bash. Uh, inside the cabinet room where Boris Johnson's wife and the Chancellor and the Prime Minister were present. I think the main concern is that there are allegations that over a dozen parties took place in Downing Street. The Prime Minister is said to have been at several of them. It is entirely possible that the Prime Minister may well get fined again in a couple of weeks time. And that is, I think, where, yes, you're entirely right in saying that in many ways politics has very significantly moved on in the last two months since the heat of this uh, story back at the end of January, start of February. But there, as I say, it could be more fines. There could be pictures released of what went inside uh, Downing Street. We've also still got to wait on Sue Gray's report, which could prove politically damaging. And all of this, while there will be an electoral test for the Conservative Party at the local elections uh, next month. So the Prime Minister is safe for now. His critics, many of them who called for him to resign, are suggesting now is not the time, uh, Nigel. Yeah. But to say that this is all over now. The Prime Minister's apologised, he's paid his fine and we're all going to move on. We're not there yet either. No, I don't think we are. And you mentioned there, Darren, photographs. Now, Dominic Cummings, and whatever we think of Dominic Cum Cummings' his motives, but it's Cummings himself, isn't it, who said there are 300 photographs of these parties. Do we expect Dominic Cummings to be releasing some of these to perhaps the Sunday newspapers? Uh, it is entirely possible. Um, and I think at some point we will get to see those pictures, whether they're leaked by Dominic Cummings or others. I think that's almost a certainty. And I think, again, that's a dangerous moment, isn't it? That actually seeing... It's all very easy to talk about these things. But to see them, I think, will add on the pressure. There is another big moment, potentially, and I say potentially because I think it is unlikely, is how... The man who lives slightly further down the street here, Rishi Sunak, reacts to all of this. As you said, he's had a pretty torrid couple of weeks. There have been suggestions before all of this has happened that he may well just walk out of politics. Could he resign over this? Is this his get-out, if you like? If he did that, that would expose the Prime Minister. I think that is unlikely because he would be seen as an act of betrayal by many Conservative MPs, but it is possible. But in the end... 
Most Conservative MPs have judged now is not the time to remove the Prime Minister. That is not to say that I think uh, many of them have made up their minds that in the long run he is not a good bet for the Conservative Party. And if there is one thing that Boris Johnson is very good at is essentially setting his own landmines and then slightly blowing himself up over them. And I think that's the concern is that even if he manages to get through this latest scandal to the party gate, who knows what will happen further down the line. No, absolutely. Darren McCaffrey, thank you very much indeed for that analysis from Downing Street. And as Darren says, the problems that are being caused for the Conservative Party are not being caused by the Labour Party. They're not being caused by the opposition attacking. No, they're being caused by mistakes they're making themselves. And that really is the point. And I expect there will be more errors to come in the months that follow. Hence my question, will he still be there at Christmas? Now, people, his critics, saying now is not the time for him to go because there is a war on in Ukraine. Well, I'm joined to think about this by military historian Peter Chadwick adams Peter, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. I was drawing very briefly in my introduction um, the story of 1945. Uh, Germany uh, has capitulated, unconditional surrender, but we were still engaged in an absolutely bitter, vicious war against uh, Imperial Japan. We had tens of thousands of people in appalling conditions in POW camps and some experts thinking the war could have lasted for years and years. Um, and yet it didn't save Churchill, did it? Well, we may, it didn't. It didn't save Churchill on, on that occasion. I mean, uh, we, we have a habit of changing horses, changing prime ministers in the middle of world wars. And we've done it three times. We did it once in the First World War and we did it twice, of course, in the Second World War in 1940 and in 1945. Um, in a way, we could wave the banner and say that is what democracy is all about. If, if there's time for a change, um, then the, world, the fact that a world war and something as dramatic as that uh, is going on shouldn't get in our way of, of reflecting the public mood uh, and changing the man or these days the woman at the top. So that's, that, that's where we are. But yes, you're absolutely right. 1945, we expected the war to go on for years, not just mm. a few more months. Mm. Um, so there was far more at stake in those days. And were those arguments, I mean, in 1940 when Chamberlain went, and 1945 uh, when Churchill went, um, were those arguments made that you can't remove a prime minister because we're at war? I'm sure they were. And this is all down to personality. Churchill... Um, I mean, it was, a, it was a knife edge, but I think it was Churchill's election to lose and he lost it. Um, in 1940, it was uh, Chamberlain had very clearly lost the mood of the country. Um, and uh, it was surprising that he hung on uh, as late as he did. So this is down to personality. Uh, and that is why I think Boris Johnson will survive. And you do, I think, um, because he's got that kind of bounce back personality. Um, and he clearly enjoyed being he enjoys being one of the leaders of the free world standing up to Putin at the moment. And he was quite quite clearly a different person when he visited Kiev as we saw over mm -hmm. the weekend. Mm -hmm. I've never seen him more relaxed and confident as he was then. It was almost as though he'd stepped off onto a different planet. And I think yeah, that makes a difference. I, mean, I agree with you. Peter, I agree with you. He did it very, very he did that very, very well indeed. And that's why I believe he will survive for now. Uh, but I do think the other problems are going to mount. And May the 5th 
uh, could be some sort of electoral disaster. One other quick historical comparison I'd like to draw with you. And it's the 1979 government of Margaret Thatcher was, uh, by early 82, in very considerable trouble. The, the policies they'd put in place to tackle inflation uh, were the most unpleasant tasting medicine there's ever been. Uh, they were long-term plans and short-term they were hurting people. The Falklands War arrives. Uh, we are victorious, albeit at cost, but we are victorious. And suddenly, the electoral prospects of the Conservative Party completely change. And I totally get those positive images of Boris Johnson in Kyiv. And as I drive around the countryside, I'm, I'm amazed to see the number of houses flying Ukrainian flags. I really am. But somehow, Ukraine, at the moment, isn't quite seen to threaten us and what we stand for in the way that the Falklands did. You're absolutely right. Um, but there is a sense that Ukraine is the first of several dominoes that could fall if Vladimir Putin is successful. Um, there's also a parallel which you didn't draw with 1982 and the Falklands War, is, yep. which is that both wars were partly triggered um, by government cuts in defence. Um, and part of uh, Britain's sense of unreadiness uh, to meet Vladimir Putin uh, has been a continual wind down of defence and foreign policy, uh, at least for the last 15 years. Um, and had it been different, then uh, Putin might well have been deterred. Had it been different under Margaret Thatcher, then the Argentinian yeah. Junta might well have been uh, deterred as well. Um, so there are direct parallels there. This one, I think, is going to go on and on. I can't see a quick end to Ukraine. That means this is going to run and run. And as Boris Johnson has stepped up to really be the leader of Europe, um, in terms of supplying weapons and equipment and, and, and clearly making his trip over there. I think for as long as Vladimir Putin is going to be as aggressive as he is, Boris Johnson has found a magic formula which is going to inspire the country and also, di uh, and also distract his critics. And very, that, will, that will take him through the May elections. Very interesting. Peter Caddick-Adams, we will find out a lot on May the 5th. Of that, I've got no doubt. Thank you for joining me this evening. On GB News. Thank you very much. Well, another big Tory scandal that broke yesterday was, of course, the Member of Parliament for Wakefield, who has been found guilty of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old boy. Yet, Rygate MP Crispin Blunt leapt to his defence, said the whole thing was truly dreadful, the jury had got it wrong. Today, he's apologised and backtracked. In a moment, we'll look at that. As Partygate round two begins yet again with, I'm sure, quite a lot more to come. What do you think? Do you think Boris Johnson will survive, especially on the back of Ukraine, and still be there as leader at Christmas? Becky says, yes, I do. It was a cake at work. It wasn't a party. Well, that's the one particular event they have been fined for. But as I say, there are a lot more other parties or events that will be investigated. Another viewer says he stays as PM, especially during the Ukraine crisis. A world leader. Simple. Sheila says... Of course he should stay. It was a work bubble. Interesting thought. Gary says he shouldn't be PM tomorrow. The fact he has not resigned or been forced out by his party shows how far standards have fallen in UK politics. And Malcolm says, of course Boris will still be PM at Christmas. The Ukraine war has saved his political life. 
Yes, it has. You're absolutely right. And he has done well, and he did look very impressive in Keith. No question about any of that. I just think, in terms of voters' minds, it's not going to have the same kind of effect as it had for Margaret Thatcher. That's my thought. Now, what is going to happen with the next phase of this Ukraine war? I predicted back in 2014 that I thought there would be a war in Ukraine. I was one of the very few that said that, and it wasn't a very popular thing to do. But I was surprised when Putin sent the tanks rolling towards the capital city of Kyiv. You see, I thought his interest was always the eastern Donbass province. And let's have a look at the map now and see what the military situation is. As you can see, it is the eastern provinces, it is the land bridge to Crimea. That is where the big Russian attacks are going in now. Now, these areas, or many of these areas, are highly contested because they have a pretty high percentage of Russian speakers. And there have been all sorts of dreadful things going on in parts of Donetsk and Luhansk since 2014. But I fear we're about to enter a really horrible, ghastly, bloody two or three weeks of this war. And it all, for me, hinges around May the 9th. Why May the 9th, you ask? Because that is the day. That is the day that Russia has its grand Red Square military parade. That is the day when they commemorate and indeed celebrate the ending of World War II, or as they call it, the Great Patriotic War. And my guess is that Putin is going to do everything he can to secure some sort of prize for May the 9th. That's my guess. That's what I think. In many ways, I hope that I'm wrong. Well, joining me now is security expert and former British Army intelligence officer, Philip Ingram, MBE. Philip, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Uh, you heard my talk there. I mean, I'm very fearful. You know, some people said that the advance on Kyiv, they were old tanks, they were raw recruits. But my fear is that the best of Putin's army is going to be active, very active in eastern Ukraine in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I never thought I'd ever hear myself saying this, but I agree with you completely. Um, you know, the, the Putin has used his best forces in uh, his initial attacks, which his main effort was to try and topple the government of Ukraine. Uh, and he and his foreign minister, Lavrov, both said that. Um, and then they put um, uh, their uh, GRU, their Spetsnats, into Kiev in civilian vehicles, which all of a sudden had Zs painted on them the yeah. day the invasion came in. They put a very complex attack helicopter um, air mobile operation in to try and capture uh, the airport to the northwest of Kiev. Um, and they got a small toehold in there before the Ukrainians kicked them out. They tried to take that toehold and, and grow it to a foothold and a beachhead by flying paratroopers in. The Ukrainians shot down two of their Aleutian 76s, killing up to 600 paratroopers. And they tried to meet it um, uh, and uh, join it up with an armoured column coming in from the north. Um, and it was, you know, uh, more than a bridge too far. It was a column too far. You know, they, they got stuck and then the Ukrainians started to pick them off and they've had to withdraw. So they've, they've lost so far. So if we look at this, you know, if he throws everything he's got at those eastern Ukrainian areas in the next couple of weeks, are you saying that even with the full might of Russia being deployed, are you saying... Firstly, are you saying that the Ukrainians are sufficiently armed uh, to take him on and beat him? And secondly, these are very contested areas anyway, aren't they? 
They, they are. It, it's interesting. Russia has done done some good things militarily. They have put um, their operation under one single commander. Um, they, beforehand, each of the different um, approaches were under different commanders. So they've done that, and he can set his priorities. The second thing they've done is by focusing now, coming in from the southeast, is that they've shortened their lines of communication into Russia itself so they can get their troops in quicker, they can get their logistics in quicker. However, uh, things that they haven't done and won't be able to do, they won't be able to change their commander's experience and tactics. And it's quite clear the commanders are not up to these sort of complex military combined, what are called combined arms, all arms operations. Um, and, and they'll never get them up on time. They, they have not got their logistics um, tuned properly to support these sorts of operations. Uh, and they're going to be attacking into an area where the Ukrainians have been preparing defences for over eight years and will have their best troops in there uh, waiting for this to happen. So I think you know, the Russians are going to throw as much as they can at it. I don't think they're going to get the numerical superiority that you would need for uh, attacking into a defensive position, which is, in theory, three to one superiority. Uh, and I, I think the Ukrainians are going to give them another bloody nose. Interesting. No, as you say, they've had a long time to dig in and prepare. And just one last thought, please, while I've got you, uh, Philip. And overnight, I'm very sceptical about all news reports I see. I really am. I know there's disinformation <laughs> going on and all sorts of things. But overnight, we had fears that chemical weapons had been used in Mariupol. Yeah. Uh, can you comment on that, please? Yeah, I can. It's a single-source report that came in from um, either members of the uh, Ukrainian Marine Brigade or of the Azov Regiment that's been defending from uh, a large steelworks. Um, and they talked of a, um, a drone spraying something and then people suffering chemical uh, uh, poisoning symptoms. Um, you know, it's, it's highly unlikely. It's not the sort of mechanism that you would deploy a chemical weapon from easily. You need a greater concentration that's in there. Single source, you can't confirm it. The troops are desperate. They'll know that as soon as you say chemicals and put it out into social media, that that will cause a stir around the world. They want NATO to come in and try and help them. That's the only way that's going to save their lives on the ground. I think if, if there was a chemical incident, it's more likely to be an accidental release of toxic industrial chemicals from within the steelworks, potentially because something's gone bang beside it as part of the conventional battle that's going on. Um, right. But there's just not enough information to make a call one way or the other. Now, as I said at the start of that little segment, be careful about all information we're given and think it through. That really was great, Philip. Thank you for your analysis and thank you for joining us tonight here. Thank, thank you, Nigel. Thank you. It's time for the What the Farage moment. Oh, dear, oh, dear, this is very difficult. It's the BBC. Gosh, I struggle. I'm sure you do too because you have to pay £159 a year. And if you don't and you're found to have a TV on, well, you could even in the end go to prison. Well, they're at it again, playing very political games. And this time it's with young children. Yes, BBC's Early Years Guidance for a programme that is called BBC's Tiny Happy People website. Well, that sounds innocuous, doesn't it? That sounds really rather Jolly in many, many ways. But now the website is saying, for white mums or dads, it might be time to examine your own internal biases. Yes, what is your social circle like today? Does your child have black or brown friends over for playdates? Could you be doing more? And you see what the BBC is telling us with our money 
is that because you're white, you may well be guilty. I wonder whether they give the same advice to parents with black or brown skin in some parts of our big cities where they may be in a majority. Would they be telling black kids to make sure they mix with white kids? I don't think so. I see no evidence of it whatsoever. And they wonder. Some people wonder why the BBC is so heavily disliked. Now, the other What the Farage moment, and this is extraordinary. And it is that a Conservative Member of Parliament, Crispin Blunt, he's been the MP for Reigate in Surrey since 1997. Uh, and I talked earlier and said the problems aren't just Boris Johnson. The problem is there's a list as long as your arm of Conservative Members of Parliament. There are some Labour ones too. But Conservative Members of Parliament getting into trouble or doing incredibly stupid things. In the wake yesterday of Imran Ahmad Khan, the Conservative Member of Parliament for Wakefield being found guilty by a jury of sexual assault on a 15-year-old boy, Crispin Blunt went absolutely bonkers and he said that it was all completely wrong. He said it was a dreadful miscarriage of justice. And he said the conduct of this case relied on lazy tropes about LGBT plus people we might have thought uh, had gone decades ago. Um, it was an unusual thing for a Conservative MP to do. Uh, he was also, interestingly, quite supportive of Keith Vaz not so long ago. Now, he does find himself as the chair of a cross-party committee in the House of Commons uh, that campaigns for LGBT plus rights around the world. And after his comments yesterday, several members quit. Well, he has now gone from that role and said, I'm sorry that my defence of him has been the cause of significant upset and concern, not least to victims of sexual offences. And once again, it's a Conservative Party uh, that is tying itself in knots, that is not getting the kind of leadership and discipline within the country. Maybe, just maybe, after 12 years in power, it's just too much. Perhaps that's the experience we learned from previous Conservative and Labour administrations. Maybe, after a few terms at the top, it's time for a shake-up, because things are not going well. Some more thoughts from you. Jake says, I don't think Boris will be PM at Christmas. Lynn says, Boris should be already gone. No one's moving on from Partygate. People died alone. And this is the point, isn't it? That Boris Johnson has been fined for what happened on his birthday. What about those that died on their birthdays in hospital, not allowed to have visitors? They're the points that have been put by those opposed to Johnson that have had, I think, perhaps the most resonance. But some of you may say, ah, it was a work bubble. It doesn't count. Robert says... Boris Johnson will still be PM at Christmas. The gravity of the war far outweighs this minor scandal. Marion says, I support Boris and Rishi carrying on with this partygate business is pathetic. Well, it's not me doing it. It's the Metropolitan Police putting a criminal sanction on the Prime Minister, the PM's wife, and indeed the Chancellor Rishi Sunak too. Linda on email says, no, I don't think Boris should resign. He led Brexit, and if he goes, it opens up the door for the Remainers. Well, I think that ship has sailed, to be absolutely honest with you. Now, in a moment, I'll be talking to somebody who did hit genuinely rock bottom, but survived, has turned his life around in the most remarkable way, now has a scheme to help ex-offenders get back into the workplace, become productive again. I'll be joined by Mark Johnson, MBE, for Talking Pints in just a moment.
The GB News Tavern is open. It is time for Talking Pints. I'm joined by Mark Johnson, MBE. Mark, welcome, welcome. to yeah. the programme. Now, I think it's important that we tell your story because it's happening to, I think, an increasing number of people. But you came from, I guess, what can only be described as a difficult, violent yep. background. Yep. Um, I guess we call it abuse. Yep. Yeah, these definitely. Days. Yep. But sadly, uh, this is not uncommon. No. Um, and you, I guess, as many kids in those situations do, quite quickly started doing bad stuff. Yep. You, uh, it's pretty sort of logical, really, that um, you practice outside what you're learning inside. So um, I didn't really realise my behaviour was antisocial until I was in social environments like school, where I thought it was normal to, you know, sort of uh, project violence onto other kids and this sort of stuff. And, uh, and then comes the school exclusion, the ostracise, the isolation, the, um, uh, the criminalisation, actually. So... And yeah. does that go hand in hand with drink, drugs? Is it yeah. all part of the same thing? Well, I think, I think when, when in, the, in the home, my home, which is, you know, there, there's a lot of stories that are the same as mine, um, which I come into contact with daily. Um, you know, people, uh, when there is neglect, um, there is a human need to fill that void. So love, warmth, uh, nurture, etc. And then when you're, you spend your life mostly outside the home because it's safer you come into contact with the yeah. people who are drinking the committing crime and that sort of stuff and their friendships are more important than the getting arrested by the police it's as simple as that it's attachment the attachment theory they call it um you know and it's so it's so sort of prevalent now with gang activity and this sort of stuff and i talk about this uh, all the time that um, it's, it never gets looked at properly because what we do is we criminalise behaviour rather than look at the true causes. And the true cause is actually the neuroscience now have got it about um, early childhood trauma on the brain. Mm. And actually what looks like a reaction, um, doesn't, that doesn't need to be treated. It's an actual cause. We need to really you know, look at this stuff. Which is difficult to do on a mass scale, isn't it? Absolutely. I'm I mean, very, very difficult. I'm a 52-year-old man. I've been clean and abstinent for 22 years in recovery, yep. and I am still working out um, these what I call blank pages in early childhood development, in you know, sort of uh, complex relationships and stuff. You know, when, when I couldn't cope, I would be violent. You'd be violent, and your descent into drugs led you to, well, you can't really get much worse, can you, than crack? No, uh, crack and heroin. Heroin. Yeah. heroin. And with that, I guess, the criminality yeah. to, to pay for it. Yeah, it's, a, it's, such, it's so logical that it done for me um, what, what wasn't happening at home. Mm. So I was under school psychiatry at eight years old in Tubu with the police. Somebody gave me this chemical, and literally it made me feel brilliant. Yeah. And so I chased after that. Yeah. And it was that was like the, the consequences of it paled into insignificant compared to the actual uh, the anguish that I mm. felt without it, and that that took me to the streets, you know. And in inevitably, it finished up with prison. Yeah, uh, prison. Uh, well, it, inevitably, it finished up on the streets of West End in London, sleeping yeah. in the shop doorway. Yeah. But along the way, it was prison sentences, um, uh, drug rehabs, um, all sorts of uh, you know. People that did try to help but actually didn't reach me, um, um, whether I wasn't ready to be honest, which I think now I know reflecting back 
the prerequisite to change is self-honesty. Mm. And, and if I help people, it's to take them to that place of self-honesty. You wrote a book about this that yeah. sold incredibly well. An autobiography brilliantly named Wasted. Yeah. I don't know, it's a great, I'm amazed, I'm amazed nobody else had used it. Yeah, it? I know, yeah. And we yeah. couldn't read it enough, but it's a great title. Yeah. Um, and you, you made the decision, at, at some point you faced up to this and said, right, I'm going to be dead soon. Yeah. I had um, Elizabeth Burton Phillips on this programme yeah, a few months back, and, you know, her son was in a similar position to you and died. Yeah. Uh, and she's done her best through charity to try and work with families that have yeah. to live with that terrible trauma. You didn't die. You decided you want to live. You turned it around. Yeah. Um, what really interests me is, OK, you've gone through the rehab, you're clean, but it was how you then got into the productive world, the world of work. Yeah. How did you make that, that step? Because it's not easy for ex-offenders, is it? No, no, it's definitely not. I, um, I was on the street, West End, or seven and a half stone, of covered in body lice and scabs growing through the socks of my feet where I never took my shoes off. Somebody that had um, used with me before got clean and become a social worker and they were doing community action. And through that, through that interaction of lived experience, I looked at him and I immediately trusted him because I knew he'd stepped in my shoes. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the point that really reached to me uh, because I never trusted anybody. I never trusted the police, social services, because I always had a bad experience with them. But actually, somebody with that lived experience, I immediately got, he won my trust immediately. Yeah. And he said, you can change if you want to. And I couldn't say, how do you know? Because I know that he'd changed. And he'd done it. Yeah. So he, he led the way. I went into um, uh, detox. I went into drug rehab. Um, I'm very, very lucky. I mean, now, the three drug rehabs I went to, Westminster Council paid £20,000 for one year of drug treatment for me. All of those treatment centres are now closed through funding, lack of funding. I'll come out the other end of it, and um, I, I love trees. Yep. And um, I basically started a tree surgery business. <laughs> so the best, the mind of an addict is very clever. So you started to become an entrepreneur over there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it wasn't that, it was going, you weigh up, like, what are your skills? Yeah. And I could, I could hustle. And uh, I knew about numbers and this sort of stuff. And also, um, drug addicts aren't lazy people. So you might look at the criminality and the vulgar behaviour and stuff, mm. but actually to be an addict, you work like 24-7 in finding drugs. And, um, and so what I'd done is I'd transferred those skills yeah. into an arboricultural company. Then within four years, I think I employed, from the street in four years, I employed about 200 uh, people like me. Yeah. Uh, I won loads of awards for it. And then I, I, I went on to work uh, with the Prince of Wales. And hey, you've got an MBE. I mean, you've gone from where you were to getting an MBE. Yeah. I love that. So the people you employed mm. in that commercial company yeah. were people who'd been through similar. Yeah. yeah. And how many of them let you down? Uh, a few. Yeah. And and still constantly do. But that's their journey. Um, what we, what I tried to do is focus on that one that actually responds to, like me. I mean, I've I've literally in my charity now. I've employed like probably five hundred people with. Criminal convictions yeah. and addiction. So I, was, I was interested in this because, I mean, you know, you've done it, you've got a commercial business, it's a success, and mm. you say you can't win them all, yeah. but you are succeeding with some people, and yeah. hey, they're getting a few quid in their pocket too, aren't they? And, and to watch that, want, watch that transition of like a young kid who wants the best pair of trainers who goes robbing yeah. them yeah. to then the, seeing the value in earning his money mm -hmm. and seeing the delayed gratification that comes with earning a wage, it's quite a profound to witness. And then when you do witness it, you want to do more of it. Um, I realise that there's not, everybody's not like me. 
I have an entrepreneurial brain. It's almost like a mental illness because it never stops. But through that, I've created so many opportunities. Mm. And what I say to people, especially um, because at 10 years old in this country, if you get a criminal conviction, you've got a life sentence there through the stigma that's associated with that. So I say to people, the best way to circumnavigate is to become self-employed because there's no DBS check. <laughs> you know, no, there's true. no DBS no, check. Because so. otherwise it is a hell of a barrier. Absolutely. Isn't it? Yeah. In every way. And you must have made a few quid out of this too. Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, I did, yeah. No good. No, yeah. no. <laughs> well, yeah. One of the things we love on, on, on this segment, Talking yeah. Pines, we want people who've been through tough times and, and been successful. Yeah. In fact. So you then decided to turn that into a charity, User yeah. Voice. Just tell us more about that. So um, the, the, I won loads of awards. The Prince of Wales asked me to go and uh, work there at the Prince's Trust, uh, designed a mentoring project, uh, which, again, was very successful. And the, the kind of point to it is I only want to work with people with lived experience of the justice system or early childhood trauma and, you know, all of the social yeah. uh, injustices issue because I see something really unique that they can offer our society that actually is often omitted, whether it's through charities, et cetera. They consciously exclude people like me, but yet claim to work with people like me. And actually, uh, what I wanted to do is disrupt that. And so um, I've done the mentoring project with the Prince's Trust, could see that the Prince's Trust need to operate on their own parameters. And I started the charity, Rod Aldridge from Capita, the founder of Capita. Yeah. Uh, he, he incubated me. Um, and I spent a couple of years driving him mad in his offices. Uh, and then User Voice was born. And it says on its line is only offenders can stop reoffending. And it's, it's directly faced the prison system, probation services, and uh, all of the sort of, um, I'll call it the industry that's um, involved in vulnerable people. Um, so now, I mean, last week I was, um, we were working on a report for the uh, Metropolitan, no, it's actually the police inspectorate mm-hmm. about serious youth violence because they realise that when they go to do interviews and talk to people, they don't want to talk to them because of the barrier of mistrust. Um, when when you um, were doing the most comprehensive study uh, on prisoner experiences during COVID, and, yeah. and, the, and the public just don't know about so, it. I mean, from, from what I heard uh, with this, yeah. Mark, that, that there were a lot of prisoners who effectively were in cells for like 23 hours a day. 23 and three quarter hours a day. Really? So the, the, the Mandela ruling from the UN was mm. 22 hours mm. with purposeful activity, yeah, mm. like work or that yeah. sort of stuff. And, um, and, and some people think, oh, you know, I don't care about people locked in prison because I couldn't go to the doctors or I couldn't go. Uh, but the restrictions that people were, had, the mental health crisis, which is absolutely, that's the real ap- epidemic now in British prisons, um, that... All, all the sort of, let's call it the supply chain of services that work in prison and probation all got paid. Everybody's got, so the public have paid the same amount, yet people have been locked in their cell 11 and three quarter hours a day with what they call distraction packs, which, which are um, colouring books being passed underneath the doors. People who say... So it's English, almost like solitary. It's completely solitary. And the, the thing about it is... Because I mean, it's known that, you know, you know when people were put in solitary. The impact of it. You know, yeah. captured airmen in France or whatever were put yeah. in solitary and then interrogated after three yeah. weeks and they weren't the same human being. No. The, the, let's look at it uh, internationally. The Philippines released the size of the British prison population in the first month of COVID hitting the Philippines. Mm. Around 30% of their prison population got released because they know even Wuhan released their prison uh, prisoners 
because they know that prisons are the like epicenter of pandemic, you know, the transition of yeah. uh, viruses and stuff. And yet we released 57 people. But we have to have prisons, Mark Johnson, don't we? We do, absolutely. You know, and we have a problem at the moment that the prisons are full at 80,000. Yeah. Uh, there's quite a lot of people who probably should be going to prison yep. uh, that aren't, uh, given how full the prisons are. Or, or am I being a bit too... I think I think worrying about this. Well, yeah, and this is a, this is the point of like we need to take more of a get more of an appetite to look at the detail to say the public's being ripped off, you know, from the court system. I'll take so we know that seventy percent of uh, people in prison have some sort of neurodiverse condition, right? So uh, mental health issue that this early childhood trauma has impacted their behaviour. I'm not. I'm not. Um, going to sort of say I'm going to pander to their need with that. I'm just saying we know this as a fact. Yes, we all, it's, not, it's not offering an excuse, it's offering an explanation. Exactly. We also know that if, you're, if you've got a parent in prison, you're 50% likely to go to prison yourself. We also know that something like 90% of people that we put in the care industry, which I've got to say, because uh, it's quite topical in my mind, that when you talk about care, it's not in the, this care that these children experience is not in the Oxford Dictionary under the definition of care, mm. okay? We know that there's this, literally, this route through into the criminal justice system and political class after political class doesn't address it. And they say tough on crime and actually it's lazy. It's lazy on crime. We're not learning from it. I mean, some of the um, sound bites that we've heard recently from the uh, justice minister and stuff, you know, um, uh, we'll let, let you out your cell to have a game of pool if you stop taking drugs. They've diminished the addiction, which everybody, everybody in the public now have been touched by addiction, whether it's alcoholism or drug addiction. It's everywhere, isn't it? And they're, they're diminishing it down to yeah, yeah. that it's this moral choice to do it. Um, you know, the, um, the alcohol bracelets and stuff, mm. they're criminalising mental illness, uh, neurodiverse conditions. If you've got uh, one in six people have a neurodiverse like Asperger's, autism, etc., we criminalise it. The first point of contact that you have is the police. Then you go to the courts who aren't trained, especially the magistrates, uh, aren't trained into mental health, not even in law, actually. And they're, they're on about increasing the, um, the sentencing capacity of a magistrate. They're not trained in law. They're all summary convictions. So you've got a mental health. You meet the police who judge you for your behaviour. Yeah. They, they don't assess you, never mind you refer you on to a professional. You go to court, that is a summary conviction on you knowing the difference between right and wrong without any, any insight into your condition, um, put it in the prison. Very difficult. You put into prison. But it's very difficult, this, isn't it? Because the public demand it. And the public, want to be, and, and the public feel they're being kept safe. At the but very what least... What you're saying is we're yeah. not dealing with any of the causes. Of but every, at the very least, you could deal with it in prison mm. if you had the right and regime and the right and environment and in and prison. And we're not doing that. We're not. No, and we're paying for it. That's the that's the key. And nobody's holding this this government, especially, but also the the prison and the probation service to account. Nobody, nobody's well, accountable. Mike Johnson, keep doing what you do. Um, it's terrific. You've helped thousands of people through your charity, and that's mm. a fantastic thing to have done. And I think maybe what you need to do next is to get a little bit more into the public sphere and start holding people to account and offering better, positive alternatives. But I mean, I think you know the way you've turned your life around. It really is admirable. I raise my glass to you. Well done. No, thank thank you, you for joining me on Talking yeah. Bites. Thank, thank you. you. It's the end of the programme. It's Barrage the Farage. Let's see what you've got today.
Sarah asks, should we legalise cannabis? You say, I always keep my guests on because there's always more. What do you think, Mark, about legalisation or decriminalisation? Um, I think that as far as the treatment, the medical treatment and stuff, I think is absolutely showing some really good results around cancer treatment and this sort of stuff. Yeah. Around the, um, um, the issue of early childhood trauma and that kind of gateway, um, I think it's worth having an air of caution. OK, an air of caution, but mm. medical... Yeah, cannabis, yeah, yeah and, and gaining in popularity. Yeah. Quite very interesting, yeah. yeah. Fraser asks, apart from victory night on the Brexit referendum, what was the most interesting thing that happened on the campaign? What to me, oh, so many countless amazing things happened to me on the campaign, and nearly all of them around people. You know, people, you'd meet people in on the street, you'd knock on people's doors. Um, I met people who've been distinguished in war. I met people who... Um, a bit like Mark here, turned their lives around and been successes. The joy for me of being involved in campaign politics was I met some fantastic people. Last question, Paul asks, do you think it would be better if all future MPs come from a working-class background? No, not all MPs to come from a working-class background. Some MPs to have not gone to Eton or Oxbridge might be quite a good thing. OK, I'm going over the top, I know. But there are too few working-class people in politics. <laughs> 